Lloyd-Jones was a pastor in London, England, about uh, 60 years ago in London. He pastored uh, Westminster Chapel, which in downtown London is, is a very prominent church, a church in which God has used uh, for over the last centuries to uh, see the gospel flourish. And Lloyd-Jones was a very faithful pastor there in London who helped to see much uh, gospel revitalization take place there. And Lloyd-Jones, uh, about a half a century ago, uh, called his congregation to think especially about their sinfulness and about reflecting on their need to see themselves as sinners. And Lloyd-Jones said to them, What is more, unless you have experienced that, you are not a Christian. You do not believe in Christ as your personal Savior, until you realize that you cannot possibly have felt the need of Christ. You may have felt the need of help and advice and comfort, but until you awake to the fact that your nature is itself evil, until you realize that your trouble is that you yourself are wrong, that your whole nature is wrong, until you realize that you will never have felt the need of a Savior. Christ cannot help or advise or comfort until He has first of all saved you, until He has changed your nature. Oh, my friends, have you felt this need? God have mercy upon you if you haven't. You may have been inside the church all of your life and have actively engaged in its work, but still I say, and I am merely repeating what is said repeatedly in the Bible, that unless you have at some time or other felt that your very nature itself is sinful, that you are, in the words of St. Paul, dead in sin, then you have never known Christ as Savior. And if you do not know Him as Savior, you do not know Him at all. Perhaps no other area in our life to think about this morning, about our own sinfulness, is this sin of self-centeredness, the sin of self-promotion. We live our lives particularly bent towards the goal of self-promotion. We love to spotlight ourselves. We love to talk about ourselves and to talk about our accomplishments, the things we accomplish in life. Uh, we love to, to, to tell others about how good our kids are or how well our spouse is doing. We, we love to promote us. We really don't care much about others. It's the topic of selfishness that I hope that as we think about this morning, that I pray that the Spirit would prod my heart and your heart as we think about how often you and I are prone to self-promotion. To think about ourselves more than we think about others. Uh, to care about our own needs. To, to see rather the church as a place where we can gather well, and get what I want fulfilled. Uh, to see myself built up. To see my needs met. It's really all about me and really little about others. Well, as we've been thinking about in Mark's Gospel, Jesus has been prodding the disciples trying to reorient, to reorient their life, trying to, to really flip their lives upside down, to completely change the direction that they had been going in. 
Jesus has been spending time instructing his disciples and what it means to follow him. Um, when Jesus first called his disciples, like he first called you in Christ, when, when we first become Christians, we, we're trying to figure this whole thing out. We're trying to you know, kind of feel out what does it look like to follow Jesus. And, and his disciples were the same. They, they came with their own preconceived ideas about what it meant to be a Christian what it meant to be a Christ follower. Uh, they thought that what it meant to be one of Jesus' 12 disciples was that they would be promoted to some place of prominence within the kingdom of God. Often when we become Christians, we're confused about what it means to follow Jesus. And so what Jesus is doing in this section in Mark's gospel is helping us understand what it means to follow him. And so if you're a Christian this morning, and you've been sort of just sort of struggling. You know, I don't, I don't really know what am I supposed to be doing as a Christian. What does it look like? Uh, wh what are some things I should be seeing in my life? Well, friend, right here in Mark's gospel in chapters eight through ten, uh, you see Mark just laying out for us through the life and ministry of Jesus what it looks like to be a Christian, what it means to be a Christian. Uh, Friends, the last thing you want to do is look inwardly or look outwardly to figure out what it means to be a Christian. Where you want to look is in the Bible. Don't look to, to you know, how other Christians are, are perhaps doing it. That's good, but, but that can be deceiving. Don't look inwardly to say, oh, this is what, I, what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, that, that, that subjectivism is dangerous. And in our own culture, that subjectivism is what, what has caused the church to be confused about what it means to follow Jesus. Friends, I hope this morning you see clearly in Mark's gospel what it means to give yourself for the sake of others. The days of selfishness are over for Jesus' disciples. The days of self-promotion are over for them. In Christ, these disciples will be marked with humility and not pride. Selfishness, selflessness, not selfishness. Serving, not being served. Jesus is radically redefining their identities. They are, if you will, going into witness protection, and they are getting new identities. They are no longer going to be who they once were. Some of them even will get new names by Jesus to help press the point of their radically new identity. I invite you this morning to turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 and verse 35. It's page 846 in the Pew Bible. If you're not familiar with looking at God's Word, the large numbers in the Bible are the chapter numbers and those small numbers are the verse numbers and we're going to be in verse 35 this morning of mark's gospel of chapter 10 hear god's word and james and john and the sons of zebedee came up to jesus and said to him teacher we want you to do for us whatever we ask and jesus said to them what do you want me to do for you and they said to jesus grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. 
And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. And when the turn heard it, they became, or they began to become indignant at James and John. Jesus came to them and called them, excuse me, to him and said to them, You know how those who consider, are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them? And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. While these disciples eyed the best positions and seek the most power, Jesus identifies for us in this passage the true model of Christian leadership as the selfless, sacrificial service of the Son of Man who will give His life as a ransom for many. Through the transforming power of the Gospel, followers of Jesus Christ will be radically reoriented. Their lives will be given a new identity. The way they view themselves and the people around them will change. It will be reordered and reshaped. People will no longer be means to our own self-centered ends, but will, but will be individuals whom we have been called to selflessly serve with Christ-like love. That's the point that, that this passage is trying to make in our lives. That our lives, through the power of the gospel, have been radically reoriented, have been radically changed in God's word. As we consider Mark's gospel, we've been walking through this over the last year, Verse 45 is the central piece of this entire text. This entire letter sort of climbs to the mountain of verse 45. Verse 45 is the climax of the whole book in which the whole book has been driving towards. Why did Jesus come? To offer himself as a ransom for many. I want to consider in Mark's gospel this morning three things about the gospel. Three ways the gospel affects our lives. Number one, we see in our text, the gospel exposes our sin of selfishness. The gospel exposes our sin of selfishness. We're told by Mark that these two brothers, James and John, who were a part of the inner circle. You remember the inner circle, you had 12 disciples but within the twelve, there were three that Jesus sort of spent a little extra time with. He spent a little extra time grooming them. And, and uh, you know, they were the ones that got to go on the, the private mission trips with Jesus. You know, the campouts where Jesus got to pray. They were the ones that got to see Jesus transfigured. They're the ones that get to go to the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus and, and pray with them. Uh, these guys were special. They were set apart by, by Jesus for a particular role that they would play in the early church. Peter, James, and John were who they were. Peter, a fisherman. James and John, brothers of Zebedee, also fishermen. Both of, both, uh, or all three of these, these men uh, were, were well known in their communities. Uh, they were affluent. They, were, uh, they had money. Uh, they, one, owned their own business. The other would have been inheritors of a business, their father's, Zebedee's business. Uh, these guys were, were pretty cool. Um, and, uh, and we're pretty well known. And so what we see in this passage is that we as sinners 
love to capitalize on the opportunities of self-promotion. For these men, they love to promote themselves. Uh, these men sought an opportunity. Now, last week we considered in Mark's gospel, uh, Jesus is drawing near to the cross. Jesus gives us the third and final prediction of his death. Uh, in just two weeks, on a Sunday, we're going to consider in three weeks, excuse me, we're going to consider the triumphal entry. Right, that passage we celebrate often on Palm Sunday, which means that the cross is drawing near. Jesus is is going into Jerusalem. He's near Jerusalem, and, and the disciples are kind of picking up on the fact that hey, Jesus is not going to be here much longer. Now is the time that we need to get promoted in the kingdom. Now is the time we need to get in on this before ta- before time runs out. And so they they seek to capitalize this opportunity they've been given uh, due to time that uh, hey. Let's get some self. Let's get something out of this. You know, we've been with this guy for three years. Let's ensure our future is secure. And so, what we see in this passage is is sort of this opportunity. They go to Jesus and say, "Hey, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask." Now, Jesus has already instructed them to ask whatever they want, and Jesus will do for it. Remember, ask anything in my name, and I'll do it. Right. And so they, they, they don't understand quite what that means. And so they come to Jesus and like, hey, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. Whatever we want you to do, let's, we want you to do. And what we see then in this passage, Jesus' response to them in this question um, that, hey, are you able, are you able, look with me in verse 30, uh, 38, he says, are you able uh, to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What Jesus is is exposing here, often our self-righteousness reveals our inability to grasp the depth of our own sinfulness. When we self-promote ourselves as Christians, what we are doing is we are forgetting how much of a sinner we really are. I mean, just consider for a moment you standing before God and sort of unloading on him all the good things you've done. God would be like, yeah, I'm... That's, that's real great. But what about over here? <laughs> what about all these, this evil and wickedness? You know, The Bible tells us that everything we do is tainted with sin. Uh, that every good deed we do is tainted with sin. Because often we do things to be promoted in ourselves. We want the pat on the back when we do good. And the reason we know that is because we get mad. We get upset. We, we get discouraged when we don't get recognized for the good deeds we do. I mean, look at children, for example. You know, or maybe imagine when you were a child and you, you know, maybe did chores at home without being asked, right? You kind of did it uh, with the motive for self-promotion. You wanted your mom or your dad, you wanted your family to sort of say, wow, good job, you did something, right? But it never came. That self-promotion never came. You got frustrated and mad and you said, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. And they're not going to say thank you, then I'm not going to do it, right? We want self-promotion. We want ourselves to be lifted up. And, and what we need to realize is that that what these disciples are asking, what it reflects is their heart's inability to grasp their sin. If we recognize how broken we are in sin, we will not dare ask Jesus to promote ourselves. That is like saying, taking the alcoholic and making him the leader of the recovery group, right? 
The, the alcoholic who, who's still struggling to say, hey, that's the guy who we want to sleep. The guy who gets drunk every night, that's the guy we want leading us in our recovery of alcoholism. Well, now, clearly, that, is not, uh, that would not be wise, right? Um, and, and so what we see in this passage, then, is, is an inability to grasp. And also what we see in verse 38, Jesus asked them, hey, are you able to do this? And look at their response in verse 39. Oh, yeah, we can do that. They don't get it. They're completely missing the point. And friends, what we need to see is self-evaluation isn't always honest. We need to fight the temptation to look inwardly for self-evaluation. Look, modern psychology tells us to look inward for self-evaluation. Evaluate yourself, you know, look at yourself. How are you doing here? Da, 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 da. Well, because of this tendency towards self-promotion, we are always and forever, because of sin, going to think of ourselves better than we ought. We're, we're always going to think that, hey, you know, I'm not that bad. Uh, you know, I didn't do this. We're always going to we're going to always going to get in that position of self justification. And, and what Jesus is asking in this in this phrase here that he asks, he says, "Hey, are you able to do this?" He's saying, "Can you take that which overwhelms me?" Literally, what Jesus is asking there in verse 38 is, "Hey, James and John, the thing that overwhelms me, the thing that that sort of knocks me down on my knees." Can you take that? And in pride, they say, yeah, we can do that. We can take that. We can handle that. Grief is often expressed in figurative language, right? When, we're, when poems, for example, when, when, when a poet is broken and, 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 and is grieving, uh, usually it's best expressed in poetry, right? Uh, the, the, that poetry helps to express emotions in a greater light. It, it helps to sort of give uh, uh, greater teeth to that. And, and so often when we are emotionally distraught and grieved, we use sort of expressive language. Well, Jesus is sort of using expressive language, the cup and the, and the baptism, right? Like think about baptism, uh, you know, you go under the water, right? I mean, you're, 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 I mean, it's overwhelming you. It's crushing you. The water is on top of you. It, it's oppressive. It, it, it is something that overwhelms you, right? And baptism often in the Bible is points back to the flood. And, and we see there just sort of a, you know, that, that's cascading waters upon you. And so Jesus is expressing here figuratively that, that that which overwhelms me as the Son of God are you able to take. And they're saying, oh yeah, we can do what you can do. And this aspect of self-promotion is exposed. The self-evaluation is not always honest. What we see here isn't all that problematic. I want to be clear that Jesus doesn't have a problem with their question. One of the things I want to show you here is that Jesus doesn't have a problem with their question. Look at verse 39. Or verse 40, excuse me. He says, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to, for whom it has been prepared. Now, it may be that James and John, right, may be promoted to that. In fact, they have been promoted to that. Uh, the 12, the, the, the apostles have been appointed as rulers over the 12 tribes of Israel. All right. So, so they sit in judgment. They have a place in the kingdom. What Jesus is particularly pointing at is this, this aspect of entitlement. Entitlement. They thought they deserved a place in the kingdom of God. They thought they deserved a particular place in God's kingdom. 
It's like a child. It, you know, for example, it's not wrong for a child to want a cell phone. Right? You got a teenager or a teenage uh, grandchild, right? Not wrong for them to want a cell phone. But, oh, it's an entirely different, different discussion when they come and they say, I'm entitled to this. I deserve this. I should have this. this that, you know, that's unfair if you don't give me what I deserve, right? You know, the sense of entitlement is different than just a desire. And so we want to distinguish the two. These men are not, not just saying, hey, you know, if it's, you know, uh, they're saying we are entitled to this position in the kingdom of God. I just wonder, do you identify with these brothers this morning? Or do you just kind of say, oh, yeah, that's not me. No, not me at all. Oh, no, I'm Jesus in the story. Yeah, I'm Jesus. I, I'm the servant. I'm the one who served. Or do you see yourself? I, I mean, I see myself there. Oh, I see myself there so much. How often I'm tempted to self-promotion, worrying about numbers, worrying about what other pastors think or what other pastors are doing, what other churches are doing. Vine. Oh, trust me, pastors more than any are tempted in this way. This is one of the reasons why you should pray for me regularly, that God would guard my heart from such sinful self-promotion and, and, and self-evaluation that is wrong. I just wonder, can you see yourself doing this this morning? Literally asking Jesus in that, oh, how often we give ourselves to these things. How often we, we, we get offended when someone doesn't pat us on the back or doesn't bring us up here and, and talk about how good things we've done for the church. Oh, how often we want our names on placards in churches so that we can be at forever immortalized in the local church. Oh, is that not the same thing that Jesus is speaking about here? The self-promotion in the kingdom of God, thinking that we are somehow, that's not to, to step on the shoulders. It's to say that, look, we can be thankful for the past, but we don't want to make gods out of people. How often have you been passed over, perhaps for promotion? Or for a job. Seeing only your friend to get that job in your place. Have you found yourself tempted to think, you know, I deserve that job. I worked hard for that. I should have gotten that job. Or rather, are you like Christ as he exhorts us in this passage? Or rather say, no, I don't deserve those things. We often notice others in a way that's sinful. We often want to promote ourselves and use others for our own self-promotion. I wonder, do you see the church as a place for your needs to be met? Do you wake up on Sundays and say, you know, church is a place where my needs will be met. It's a place where it's all about me. Or do you come with the attitude of, hey, whose needs can I meet today? Who can I encourage with the word of Christ today? Who can I give a warm, embracing hug to who hasn't seen or touched a human being in, in a week? Who can I love on this week? Brothers and sisters, we must see this place not as a place where we gather to see our own needs met, but where we are meeting the needs of others. Where we are working as a congregation together to meet the needs of those that are helpless among us. And that doesn't mean just physical helplessness. That doesn't mean just food and money. I mean spiritual helplessness. People who are spiritually distraught, emotionally empty, who, who are facing the, the waves of, of depression every week and, and just need a brother or sister to encourage them. Friends, we need to reorient this. We need to allow the gospel first and foremost to expose 
this sin in our life. Secondly, we see in this passage that the gospel reorders our life. It reorders our life. It takes our life and completely flips it upside down. We notice in this passage Jesus instructing them, beginning in verse 39. In verse 39, as he responds to these disciples' proud response of their ability to do what Jesus does, or to be Jesus, Jesus says to them, look, here's the deal. You will drink the cup, and you will be baptized with the baptism which with I am baptized. What Jesus is saying here is that your life through the gospel will be united to my life. One of the themes in the New Testament is this union with Christ. That when we are with, through faith in Christ, we are united with Christ. We, we are united in his death, burial, and resurrection. Everything that Jesus endures, we endure. We don't endure it, though, for our own salvation. We endure it for other purposes. So we once put a priority on our own personal lives, but through this union with Christ... We now are willing to be persecuted and die for the sake of the gospel. And literally, James and John, these two brothers who wanted self-promotion, were rather humbled in that they died. They didn't die just any old easy death. Uh, James had his head chopped off by Herod, and uh, John got boiled in a vat of oil and exiled onto the island of Patmos. Not the greatest way to die uh, in your last years being covered with boil sores from being boiled in oil and then to suffer in exile. These men did face the cup and did face the baptism. They were persecuted for the sake of Christ and for the gospel. But isn't that what Jesus has already told us is the life of the disciple? Jesus has already told us in Mark 8.35, For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. The Christian life is not the easy life. It's not the, the easy sitting back in the easy chair every day. Oh, how often we are tempted to think that our life is just relaxation, that, that the kingdom has arrived and that we're in the celestial city and we just sit back and do nothing. Oh, no, friends, we will die for the sake of Christ. And evermore here in America, we will see that the cost of following Jesus will be great. I wonder how many Christians will face that call. How many Christians will be willing to lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel? We have been united with Christ in his baptism. Here's some of this from Paul in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Or in Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might walk in newness of life. We have been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Our old life is dead and we have a new life. And that's what we see here. Secondly, our new identity in Christ is radically different than our former life. Our life in Jesus is not the same. It's different. We have to recognize this. We have to wake up to the fact that our lives, if they look like the world, something is wrong. If our lives are so ordered around the world, something is wrong. And Jesus says as much in verse 42. Jesus calls his disciples together and he says, look, 
let's consider the way authority is used in the world. Let's consider the way people use authority in a fallen world. And he says, hey, look, look at the Gentile rulers who assume to have authority, who, who consider themselves rulers. Look how they lord it over others. How their great ones ex- exercise authority over them. Friends, we don't have to really look far in our world, do we? To see abuses in authority. Uh, from the abusive parent who beats their child, who abandons them. We see there clearly an abuse of authority. In the schools, a teacher who, who doesn't care for students, a, a president who doesn't care for its people, a governor who doesn't care, a CEO, a boss, a, a manager. We, we see abuses of authority all around us. Jesus points to that. He says, why do we want to be like that? Why do we hold up the world as a model for that? Jesus here gives us and says that our lives should be radically different than that. He says here in verse, in verse 42, uh, verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. Look, the way this is going on in the world, that is not what it should be among you. You once sought position and power. This is what you once lived for, but not anymore. Not anymore. This shall not be the sake among you. This is what Jesus is telling us when his disciples should be known for their love for one another and not their lording it over one another. He says, hey, the world is known for that. That's what the world's known for. We're not not surprised by that. I mean, really, honestly, be honest with yourself. Are you surprised by a politician abusing his authority? Does that shock you? No, it doesn't shock us. No, it was like, wow, you know, we see that in the headlines. Like, yeah, okay, just another day in America, right? Just another day, right? Wow, shocking, you know? It doesn't shock us. We're, we're used to that kind of stuff. And Jesus is causing us to kind of reflect on that fact that we're used to that and then say, well, why do you, ex- why do you, why do you want that in the church? No, we don't want that in the church. As Paul tells us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, we are new. We have been made new. That is glorious. Oh, because I can see myself in abusive authority. I can see my sinful self in advocating my role as a father and as a husband. And my need for Jesus. What we see also in this passage is that the Christian life is lived then in selfless service of others. Our Christian life is now reoriented not towards ourselves, but to others. We're other-oriented. Look what Jesus says. I mean, doesn't that say as much? But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, Mark uses here two really, really strong words in the Greek. Two really, and, and honestly, they're strong in our own language today. A servant and a slave. A servant and a slave. A servant. Literally a table servant. A deacon. Right? That's where we get the word deacon from. Uh, a di- uh, that's it right there. Right? Servant. A, a table servant. Literally someone who waits on tables. What a, If you've ever maybe perhaps been a waiter or waitress in your life, you can feel the weight of that. Right? That's not a great job. Right? To be cursed out by a an irate customer because their food wasn't exactly how they being skipped out on the tip or bill, not being appreciated. 
treated like you're just nothing. Hey, give me my stuff. Right? Sadly, many Christians are the ones who treat waiters like that, or waitresses like that. But nonetheless, we understand that, 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 that these aren't positions of power and authority, right? The janitor of 35 years, he's worked hard at his job, never been promoted, never been in position of authority. The, the stay-at-home mom who, who doesn't have the, the big salary, who's not, in our culture, promoted as someone important, right? Now, what we see here is we see Jesus identifies himself and his people among servants and slaves. And brothers and sisters, we have 2,000 years of testimony to, to this very witness that God works among the least of any society. That God is at work among the least to bring them unto redemption for his own glory. Servants and slaves. A slave is, is literally a bond servant. Someone bonded to another uh, because of some debt that is owed. Brothers and sisters, do you see this is our new identity in Christ? This is who we are? That those who are first will be last and those who are last will be first? Did you see that, that if you seek for self-promotion in the kingdom of God, God will humiliate you. It's not, brothers and sisters, the Billy Grahams and the, and the Charles Stanleys and the, that are most praised in the kingdom of God. And I don't think those two brothers would want much praise. I don't think they do what they do for praise. Don't, don't we often worship heroes of the faith? Don't we often worship pastors and preachers and religious leaders we put them on pedestals and we think, oh, and then when they sin, we're, our idols come crashing down. But rather, we need the Spirit of Christ that Paul tells us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Look, when we were children, we had things that were so important to us. When I was a kid, this may seem so radically crazy, uh, but, you know, I'm among friends. I'm among, among people that even know what they are. VCRs, right? So if I was talking to a bunch of teenagers, they'd be like, what's a VCR? i never heard of that in my life. Never even seen one before. What is a VHS tape, right? But VCR, when I was a kid, I uh, mean, I had to have been probably maybe fifth or sixth grade. I wanted a VCR. I could, I saved my money. I wanted a VCR so I could, but I didn't want just, I wanted one that could record shows, right? Like a, you know, like the DVR, like the DVR today, right? We wanted DVR. I wanted that. I gave myself that. I, I mowed grass. I babysat. I saved my money. I wanted that. I don't want one today. <laughs> that is not that important to me today. I don't want that. Friends, we give ourselves to things that are so long, that, that are fleeting. We give ourselves to, to promotion and, 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 and praise that is fleeting, that we won't care about in eternity. Oh, we change our interest. Brothers and sisters, we need to grow in Christ the way our interests change. We need to change what we focus on what we give ourselves to. 
Friends, there are many opportunities in the Christian life to demonstrate this kind of selfless sacrifice that Christ calls us. We don't have time to think of the many ways that we can do that. A husband serving their wife, a a mom serving their children, a a grandparent serving their grandchildren, going and serving your neighbors, mowing grass, uh, uh, baking meals, perhaps just with your eyes and and the members around us asking, hey, how can I help you? How, How can I serve you? What can I do to help you? One of the greatest ways you can do that and the most practical, you can do this today. Just take our members directory and pray through it. Take it and pray for the members of the church. There's no greater way you can serve members. There's a guide to how to do that. Pray for one another. Serve one another in this way. Well, let's look at third and finally at the last point, which is the most important, and we don't have a lot of time for it, but I but, uh, want to get through it as quickly as possible. The gospel ultimately delivers us from God's wrath. Verse 45, which is the key to this whole text, is Christ example to us of the kind of life he wants us to live. Christ exemplifies for us this selfless service for others. Mark writes, Jesus' words here, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I just want to run quickly through a few things here. What is a ransom? So what is a ransom? What that is is a payment for freedom. It's a payment for freedom. Now, what was Jesus paying? Jesus was purchasing our freedom from God's wrath. One of the things you want to think, Jesus wasn't paying Satan. Jesus wasn't paying... Jesus was paying the debt that our sin owed. Right? So so just like in work, we, we, you know, we acquire a paycheck. Paul tells us we get a paycheck at the end of our life, and that paycheck is eternal damnation, eternal death because of of our sin, and God pours out his wrath on us. So how then did Jesus pay for it? What currency did he use? We use the currency of his own life. The currency by which Jesus used to pay our sin debt was his perfect life and his death on the cross. He was our substitute. Our sin deserves death. He died in our place as our substitute, okay? Now, Jesus talks about here a cup and a baptism. Just to clarify what those mean. What is this cup? The cup is, is, a, is a symbol of God's wrath. So, so in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember Jesus is praying there in the Garden of Gethsemane? He, he, he's, he's very upset, um, so much so that his, he, he's not sweating, you know, regular sweat. His capillaries have burst. He's so under pressure, and he's literally bleeding uh, from, his, from his pores, okay? And Jesus is bleeding there, and, and so just to visually sort of capture what's happening, Jesus is there, and he says, uh, he, he cries out to the Father, and he says, take this cup from me. In the cup of God's wrath. It was overwhelming Jesus. This is what Jesus means. That which overwhelms me are you able to take. And so what we see that Jesus takes upon himself the wrath of God. So what we sing in, in Christ alone. That Christ bore the, the, the wrath of God. Now then, what does this ransom accomplish? He accomplished our redemption from sin and reconciliation to God. So the gospel accomplishes, Christ's finished work on the cross is the only means by which you can have a relationship with God. It's the only way. 
So your ticket to heaven, if you will, is Jesus alone, not your goodness, not your obedience, not your faithfulness. In him, in him alone, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his power. Whereas John writes, he is the propitiation, that is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Friends, this is the truth we sing about today. This is what we cause our hearts to sing about every week. We want to sing about this every week. We sing about this in before the throne of God above. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. To look on Him and pardon me. To look on Him and pardon me. He paid your sin debt. He ransomed you. God is satisfied. He's satisfied. He doesn't have wrath against you any longer. Christ has has purchased it all. He drank the whole cup. There's not a drop left in the cup for you to bear. This is why we believe in the eternal security of the saints. Because hell is reversed for those whose wrath has not been borne. For whom God is not satisfied. So how do we respond to this truth? Through repentance and faith. As Christians. Or as a non-Christian. The response to the gospel is always. Repent and believe. Trust in the finished work of Christ. The gospel causes us to turn. From our sin. To trust in Christ. And to travel with him. This is what the gospel does. Turns us from our lives to His. Causes us to trust in Him. In Him alone. And says we are to travel with Him. To go to the cross with Him. To lay our lives down in place of His. Perhaps you're like the disciples this morning. You vie for position and power. You love to have influence over others. You seek the best positions. You seek the most power. But what we see in this passage is a new identity that Christ has given us. A life lived in selfless sacrifice. Through the transforming power of the gospel, we we now have new identities. We're we're new creations. We give ourselves. We no longer see people as projects or people as means to an end. But we genuinely are broken. We are genuinely wanting others to be built up. We genuinely want to serve others in Christ's likeness. Let's pray. God of the universe, our Savior and Lord, we cry to you as sinners in need of a Savior. Father, we pray that by your grace you would expose our sinfulness and our selfishness. Father, we pray that the gospel would expose it daily in our lives, that you would root out all sin. Father, that through the power of the gospel you would reorient our lives around this new identity we have as servants and slaves of one another. The genuine community would be built around that principle of selfless sacrifice, serving others rather than ourselves. 
And Father, may our hearts just be caused to glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For we have been saved from the wrath of God. You are satisfied. There is no longer anger. No longer wrath. Jesus absorbs it all for us. And we stand forgiven at the cross. May our hearts and lives so sing of joy at this reality that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.